In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. My Lord and my God, I firmly believe that you are here, that you see me and that you hear me. I adore you with profound reverence. I ask your pardon for my sins, for the grace to make this time of prayer fruitful. My Immaculate Mother, Saint Joseph, my Father and Lord, my Guardian Angel, intercede for me. The Church ends the season of Christmas and begins the long period of ordinary time with the Feast of the Baptism of our Lord Jesus Christ. Our Lord's Baptism on the surface is a great mystery, it's a great paradox. Baptism, of course, is a rite for sinners. John preaches a baptism for the repentance and the forgiveness of sins. And so this, of course, when we know who our Lord is, and we know about you, our Lord Jesus Christ, is a paradox. Lord, you are the spotless lamb. You are totally innocent. As God, you are all good, the source of all goodness, the source of all holiness. And as man, you're also sinless, born of the sinless Virgin Mary, and always united to your Father's will, seconding your Father's will. So the question arises, Lord, in our prayer, why are you baptized? Why do you need baptism? And the deep answer of our faith which helps us so much, and we see the beauty of our Lord starting his public ministry with the baptism, which will end with his crucifixion, death, and resurrection. The deep reason is that the baptism is an icon of our redemption. What our Lord does by dying on the cross and by rising from the dead at the end of his public ministry, at the end of those three years, is symbolically present, anticipated in a beautiful way in the baptism. The Gospel of Matthew summarizes what our Lord does for us by quoting the prophet Isaiah. That evening they brought to him many who were possessed with demons, and he cast out the spirits with a word and healed all who were sick. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. He took our infirmities and bore our diseases. He took our infirmities upon himself and bore our diseases in his own person. And the biggest disease, the biggest infirmity that our Lord comes to take on himself and therefore to free us from, of course, is sinfulness. Scripture says that God made him to be sin who knew no sin. That in the passion and the death, our Lord becomes identified with sin, takes the full reality of sin upon himself while still being innocent, while never offending God himself. He becomes sin for our sake so that we can be freed from sin. 
And so the baptism is a, is a beautiful prefiguring of this. Jesus, the spotless lamb, comes to be baptized as if he were a sinner, as if he needed to repent, as if he needed to ask God for forgiveness, which of course he doesn't. In the Gospel of Matthew, when this scene of the baptism is related to us, we see John the Baptist, in his own way, raise this objection. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, Let it be so now. For thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he consented. And so John the Baptist is basically objecting in a way that we just, that we just mentioned. He's saying, Lord, this is not for you. You should baptize me. You don't need to be baptized by me. And with our faith, we know this even more than John the Baptist did. We know that Jesus is truly God, the Son of God, the Holy One, Sanctus, 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 totally immaculate, totally pure, totally without sin. And it's interesting here, Jesus doesn't tell John that he's wrong. He basically implies and tells him that he's right. Jesus answers John by saying, Let it be so for now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. And so basically he said, let it it be so for now. He doesn't tell him he's wrong. He doesn't say, I need baptism. He doesn't say, I'm sinful like you, like anyone else here. He says, you're right. I shouldn't be baptized because I'm not a sinner. And so John is right using a logic of fairness using a logic of natural justice, using a logic of natural wisdom, righteousness. And Jesus doesn't disagree with them, but he says, I want to do this anyway because in this way we can fulfill all righteousness. In this way we can reach complete or total goodness. Something that goes beyond the logic of fairness, the logic of duty and obligation, the logic that John the Baptist is using when he says, I shouldn't baptize you. I remember being in the Holy Land and going to the spot, the spot where Jesus was baptized by John in the Jordan outside of Bethany. And I was struck by um, how gross the Jordan River is. It's a very small river. It's not very wide at all, and it's it's muddy, and it has tadpoles swimming all over it, and it's and it's very murky, and it doesn't smell so good. And um, and when I saw that, I, I I thought back to this passage, and I said, well, no wonder John the Baptist is trying to keep our Lord from lowering himself in this way, trying to keep our Lord from humbling himself in this way to enter such a river and to be baptized by him as if he were any other sinner. I remember being with a certain person on this trip 
And I mentioned to him, we were discussing the, the relative nastiness of the Jordan River at that spot. And he said something like, well, it was probably much different when, when Jesus came to John. In our Lord's time, it was probably wider and, and cleaner. And it probably wasn't as, as nasty as it, as it seems now. And so I think he was thinking back to maybe some pictures of artwork in which we see John the Baptist baptizing, baptizing our Lord and the river seems very picturesque and wide and with clear flowing waters. And he was trying to, in a certain sense, protect our Lord from being baptized in, in something that seemed kind of nasty and, and filthy uh, in the present day. But then I thought, well, we don't know, right, uh, which one is which, but for our Lord to show up as a sinner, for our Lord to show up in the role of a sinner, to be baptized by someone lesser than him, is a greater lowering, right? It's a greater act of humiliation. It's a greater giving up of his status, of his rights, than anything that the condition of the water, whether clean or dirty, could ever indicate. And so in a way, it would be fitting if, if our Lord did receive baptism in a kind of swampy, murky, muddy, nasty river with, with tadpoles swimming in it. Because what he's doing spiritually, what he's doing morally, what he's doing personally, is this lowering to a place where he doesn't deserve to be. And that's an icon of our redemption. It's what he does on the cross. It's what he does in the Eucharist. It's what he does at the Last Supper. It's what he does when he forgives us in confession. Our Lord goes beyond fairness. He goes beyond what is right or wrong according to our human logic. He loves us with a love in a certain sense beyond right and wrong, beyond rights and duties. So that complete righteousness that our Lord speaks of, let it be so for now, for thus it is fulfilling for us to fulfill all righteousness, complete righteousness, total goodness, is a different level, right? It's another gear of goodness that our Lord hits that we're not used to. That's not something natural. It goes beyond our normal concepts of right and wrong. And what is that gear? What is that level? What's the level of a radical giving of himself? In a certain sense, we could say our Lord is prodigal with himself. He gives himself away. And this giving of himself takes on the form of a severe lowering of himself. It entails playing a role that is not naturally his as God a role that's not naturally his as a sinless and perfect man, a role that's not fitting to his status, to his person. And so our Lord, in, in taking on sin, in subjecting himself to baptism in the Jordan, and even more to baptism by his blood on the cross, lets go of his rights. He lets go of how he deserves to be treated. He lets go of strict justice. He even seems to let go of his divine status 
St. Paul, in that letter to the Philippians, puts it in this way, a very radical description of what our Lord does in the Incarnation and what our Lord does in the Redemption. And it's all symbolized what he's doing here in the in the baptism by John. Writing to the Philippians, in the famous Philippians chapter 2, Paul writes, Have this mind among yourselves, which was in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And so St. Paul describes our redemption and describes the incarnation in terms of a kind of a, a double lowering. At first there's the kenosis, the emptying himself, in which St. Paul says it's as if Jesus lets go of his divinity, lets go of his divine status in order to become man, become one of us, become a human being. Of course, he remains God, but the incarnation is so real that it's, it seems as if Jesus detaches himself from his divinity, showing up in this way. And then, as man, Paul says, there's a second lowering. Right? Being found in the, in the form of a servant, human form, he humbled himself, became obedient unto death, death on a cross. Death on a cross is death that is suited for a criminal during that time, for a, a terrible criminal. It's capital punishment. So, Lord Jesus, we see here a love that goes beyond rights, a love that goes beyond duties. You didn't have to become man for me. You didn't have to die on the cross for me. You didn't have to take on my iniquity, take on my infirmity, bear my disease, the disease of sin. You did it because you wanted to. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And so this logic is something that, that our Lord wants us to imitate. Jesus, you tell us that we need to deny ourselves each day, take up our cross and follow you. You tell us, Lord, that unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains just a single grain, but if it dies, it bears much fruit. You tell us, Lord, that he who loves his life will lose it, and he who loses his life for my sake will find it. So what is, what, is, what is our Lord telling us there, Lord? What are you telling us? You're telling us, if I cling to my life, if I cling to my thoughts, if I cling to my rights, if I cling to myself, my own version of goodness, I'll be lost. But if I give myself away like you did in trust of God's plan and trust in God, God's love for us, and in love for God and love for others. I'll bear much fruit. I'll enter into new life. I'll experience in my own way the glory of the resurrection. 
And so we need to be careful here. This is this is an important an important point that we need to consider slowly and and think about ways in which we refuse to give ourselves away. And I think for for good people, especially for believing Christians, for orthodox Catholics, people with good doctrine, this is a particularly important step because there's a danger here for Christians who know their faith, for Christians who believe the right things. The danger here is that we can we can try to control our own goodness and control and limit our own badness. We try to stay on top of it in a controlling way. Cardinal Ratzinger, <clears throat> Pope Benedict, way before he was was Pope, even way before he was a bishop, wrote this very important book, Introduction to Christianity. And in there he talks about the the attitude of the Pharisee. The Pharisee is someone who is religious, he has the right beliefs, but he's self-righteous. His righteousness, his goodness, his holiness is something he conceives of as being in his control. And so in a certain sense, it's the product of his own will, of his own goodness, right? He attributes his goodness in the end to himself. So this is Ratzinger on the danger of this, of this view. He who is always calculating how much he must do to just be adequate and to be able to regard himself as a man with a nice white shirt front is still no Christian. And similarly, he who tries to reckon where duty ends and where he can gain a little extra merit is a Pharisee, not a Christian. Being a Christian does not mean duly making a certain obligatory contribution and perhaps, as an especially perfect person, even going a little farther than is required for the fulfillment of the obligation. On the contrary, a Christian is someone who knows that in any case he lives first and foremost as the beneficiary of a bounty, and that consequently all righteousness can only consist in being himself a donor, like a beggar who is grateful for what he receives and generously passes part of it on to others. The calculatingly righteous man who thinks he can keep his own shirt front white and build himself up inside it is the unrighteous man. Human righteousness can only be attained by abandoning one's own claims and being generous to man and to God. And so I think the danger, one of the dangers for very good people and people with very good formation is that we can become a little bit obsessed with our spiritual status, with our spiritual security. We want that feeling and that certainty that I'm okay morally, spiritually. I'm saved. Right? I'm right. I'm on the right side. And if we're not careful, we can make an idol of a certain moral security, of a clean conscience, of what Ratzinger calls there a white shirt front. Like being okay in the sight of God. That's certain to, to know that I'm in the right, that I'm heading in the right direction. And it, and the danger there is that in order to make that personal conviction, 
the personal sense that we're okay spiritually, in order to make it more secure, more firm, we tend to try to make it more something we can control, something that is in our power. And in doing that, we, we can invent all sorts of ways of being self-satisfied, of being self-righteous, of, of building ourselves up, of assuring to ourselves our own goodness before God. Before we virtue signal to others on social media or in our conversations or in the way we present ourselves, right before we kind of let others know that we're in the right and we believe the right things and we have the right causes, we virtue signal to ourselves. We convince ourselves that we're good. And this is not what God is looking for. Of course, God doesn't want us to sin. Of course, God wants us to have a clear conscience. He says, go and sin no more. Repent and believe in the gospel. But he also says things that go way beyond the avoidance of sin, way beyond the fulfillment of what is strictly obligatory. He who loves his life will lose it. He who loses his life for my sake will find it. Unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains just a single grain. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. God wants us to be like him. God wants us to be like his son, who gives up his rights, who goes beyond what's strictly fair, what's strictly obligatory. God wants us to be like him, not in sinlessness, not in perfection, not in being an infinite being, uncaused, all that's impossible, it's beyond us. But he wants to be like, he wants us to be like him in radical trust, in radical generosity, in radical forgiving. God wants all of us. He wants everything. The only way to have him with confidence, the only way to be to be confident of our of our goodness is to give him everything. Is to let him have all of us is to give ourselves away without counting the cost, without worrying about fairness. To give our, ourselves away to him and to others completely. And we can start by wanting to. Lord, give me a desire to be a real Christian. Give me a desire, Lord, to make your heart my heart. A desire, Lord, to, when when it's the right thing to do, to give up rights and and to be less calculating. Saint Jose Maria in a beautiful line in one of his homilies says, The only measure for the love of God is to love without measure. The only measure for the love of God is to love without measure. Right? God loves us infinitely. God loves us with all that he has. And so he has every right to ask us to trust him enough to try to love him back in that way. Where can I start? How do I start to live this way, Lord? Well, Lord, you want me to give you my full attention some part of the day. Be still and know that I am God. Be still and know that I am God. If I'm going to love God above all things, if I'm going to start to exist in the way that he exists as this gift of self. I have to spend time with him. I have to think about him. I have to 
see how the logic of my life doesn't match the logic of his redemption, the redemption that he's calling me to be a part of. I have to see where I'm a little bit like John the Baptist saying about our Lord and also saying about myself, don't do that. It's too much. Don't get down into this nasty water. Don't lower yourself in this way. Don't take the sufferings of others. Don't be compassionate with sinners to the point where you give yourself for them and you identify with them. It's too much. Stay with justice. Don't be so merciful, right? You're going to get burned. Don't forgive people. Stick to your rights. Where, Lord, am I like that? Where am I putting limits to my mercy, limits to my charity, limits to my generosity? And perhaps at night when we make our examination of conscience, which it's a great practice before we go to bed to take a few minutes just to check in with our Lord. How did today go? We can use these ideas to examine ourselves. Lord, am I trusting you today in the way I live, in the way I prayed, in the way I use my time? Am I trusting you in a radical way? And how do we do that? Well, to do some uncomfortable things every day out of trust in God, things that we know are good and know we should do things that are very easily avoidable, but to do them anyway out of trusting God and with the motive of being more generous, giving ourselves more, of getting out of ourselves, out of our comfort zone, doing them with trust and love. Lord, did I live today giving myself generously to you and to others? Or did I seek myself too much, my security too much, my peace too much, my pleasure too much, my rest too much? Lord, in this time, we also, it's very important, we ask ourselves, Lord, am I self-righteous? Am I down on others all the time? Am I critical? Lord, am I like that Pharisee condemned by you who, who prays and says, I thank you, Lord, that I'm not like the rest of men, right? Those sinners, or even like this tax collector here. And then he goes on to say all the good things that he does, all the duties that he fulfills, all the ways that he's made himself feel good about himself, right? All of those little things that he's built up in his day to make himself feel secure and safe in his goodness. I pay tithes, I pray, I do this, I do that. I thank you that I'm not like all those other people out there who aren't like me. And Jesus says that the the tax collector who's sitting there kneeling and won't even lift up his eyes to heaven and says, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. He's the one who goes away justified. He's the one who goes away holy because he recognizes his nothingness before God. And, and you know, he, he, he doesn't stand on his own goodness. He's not trying to save himself. And if we can do that, we have a chance of giving ourselves because We know that God has to do it. He has to help us. We're not self-righteous. The righteousness comes from God. Lord, am I judging others in this day and age when politics and opinions and culture and religion is so divided? It's very easy for us to judge others and not to look at others with a merciful heart and try to understand them. St. Jose Maria, a wonderful 
insight he had, he said that charity consists more in understanding than in giving. The greater part of charity consists in understanding more than in giving. That to really love someone is to is to try to understand them, is to make excuses for them, is to try to put ourselves in their shoes and see, well, maybe, maybe this is why they're so mistaken on this crucial topic, that they were brought up this way and they learned these things from a very early time. And they had experiences that perhaps I haven't had and God has given me graces and opportunities perhaps that he hasn't given them. Judge not, lest you be judged yourself. And so we go to Our Lady. Our Lady gave everything, everything, everything. Be it done unto me according to your word. Be it done unto me. Her person, right? not her time, not her weekend, not her free time. Be it done unto me according to your word. And so we go to her. We ask her to help us to see where we need to get beyond beyond natural justice, where we need to get get beyond our own sense of right and wrong, where we need to overcome our self-righteousness, where we need to tamp down our tendency to criticize and judge others, and where we need to start living this true Christian life, this full righteousness in Christ which entails giving ourselves, getting out of ourselves in an act of trust in God and love of God and others. I thank you, my God, for the good resolutions, affections, and inspirations which you have communicated to me in this meditation. I ask your help to put them into effect. My Immaculate Mother, St. Joseph, my Father and Lord, my Guardian Angel, intercede for me.